0: Welcome to episode the 52 of Tampa Tantrum. My name is Stephen Layton, And um, keeping up the, the grudge that me and Colin have, refre- refusing to speak to each other, um, Jen's been uh, given the joy of my company. Hello, Jen.
1: Hello, Steve. <laughs> I, is it the, really the grudge? I thought it was the hostile takeover.
0: No, 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 no. It's just a grudge. We're actually, we've, we've fallen out. Um, he wouldn't let me play with his toys. Uh, so I went and told my mum. And my mum went and spoke to his mum and they fell out too. And we're not allowed to play with each other anymore.
1: That's terrible.
0: I know, I know. It happens. But, you know. I've I've got to make friends with him before WBC because I've got to sleep somewhere. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) He's he's going to be my lodgings. So I've got to make friends with him before then.
1: You have to go stay in the late and sweet.
0: Yes, yes. Um, But we're not on our own today.
1: No, we aren't.
0: No, we are joined by... Somebody I first kind of met on Coffee for, i am I'm fairly sure it was on Coffee. When we first started talking, but I was always a fan of his postings and things. Um, should we let Ben introduce himself? Yes. Yeah. Hey Ben. Hi guys. How are you? Very very good. Very, very. Two Yanks to one Brit. I know. Actually, I've never thought of it that way, but. No. Wow! This is the hostile takeover. The SCAA is taking over the SCAE. <laughs> oh. There it is. When was that happening? Yep. Um, yeah,
2: forget this merger talk. Yeah, we're,
0: just, we're just going for it.
2: <laughs> America always talks mergers when they mean takeover.
0: <laughs> this is exactly what I've been saying, Ben. This is <laughs> we're going <gonna>
2: li- <laughs> to liberate the SCAE. That's the lingo we need to use. No, I'm just kidding. No, you're
0: not. No, no, we'll keep that going for sure. Um, <laughs> so, Ben, can you tell people who you are and kind of uh, a little bit about your background? Because I, I, For me, I'm super interested on how you have got involved in coffee initially, but also your previous life before coffee and yeah, yeah. All those things
2: yeah yeah sure well um i have no idea how i got where i am now <laughs> but I uh, used to be a political journalist in america for about 15 years so um covered a lot of presidential campaign stuff and government stuff at all levels um and that was great fun so i, I still feel like i'm a writer mm-hmm. um but was always a coffee nerd in my old coffee blog uh, chemically imbalanced was an excuse to go home after a long day of work and write poorly uh, about coffee in a ranty sort of way is the, is and the site
0: still up now Ben is that is it
2: uh, I reckon it's still out there and that uh, you could embarrass me by pulling it up and and reading something. And honestly it uh, won't
0: embarrass you at all because I remember that being one of like at the time of the blogs and it was kind of like 2003 2004 where blogs kind of really kicked off it was I, I remember that being one of the ones that What wasn't quite so full of rubbish because there was an awful lot that were full of rubbish on there And it was like I loved it when you posted something new up there and that was my first introduction to you And I think it comes across so obviously you're a professional writer in your blog that it was engaging it was interesting
2: Well, it was kind of ranty and silly and it was an excuse for me to use lots of big words for no reason at all (laughs) And these are these are things that professionals shouldn't do Uh, So I guess that's what I mean when I say I I could sort of go home, do my hobby, and spout off a bit. Uh, The audience always surprised me a little bit, and I think to the degree that it worked, or to the degree that people found it interesting, it was because I was not in the coffee industry. So there was that sort of slight independence and that slight crankiness that came from being a journalist and from being an outsider and from really enjoying coffee but kind of being amazed at how things worked in coffee
0: i think that's really interesting though because there is even now you know kind of like we're, we're sitting here like as, as coffee professionals just talking about coffee and there isn't necessarily that um engagement uh, of uh, the users He's on a platform that industry people would read but yours is very much kind of it, it there was an awful lot of industry folk reading your blog at the time. I don't really see anything like that now. I think mm-hmm. it's almost like we've separated into our little camps that the consumers are doing their thing and and the, you know, the professionals are doing their thing and there isn't that bridge across that your blog was back then.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, and again, that was a surprise and that wasn't planned and that was an accident. And people would occasionally try to take me down a notch and I would go, Uh, i'm not even in the industry so i can't get any lower than i am now but uh it made for a nice insulated in place from which to lob a few criticisms i guess um if you fast forward to today you know one of the things i do coffee now is i do this occasional magazine with james hoffman and the, the way that happened was uh james used to read my blog and i used to read his blog back when we were both just nerdy bloggers i guess and uh, when I quit blogging, he said to me at some point, you, ne- you need to write more. And I said, well, fine, then let's do it properly and let's do a magazine. So that was the genesis of that. And even though Longberry, I hope, is a more professional uh, outlet for coffee writing, uh, I do kind of want to preserve a bit of that sensibility where um, there's a bit of independent and I don't mean independent in the sense that you can't be involved in coffee, but independence in the journalistic sense, you know, that we have the ability to at least step away from our game a little bit and ask critical questions and not be afraid of that. And so that's what I hope to bring with Longbury uh, in maybe a more professional way.
0: I think that I have never really kind of thought of the two together, like your blog and, and Longbury, but now, now like I'm talking about it because it's been such, there was quite a gap in between... You write in the blog and and then stopping and then Longbury coming out. Yeah. This style is very similar, isn't it? There's that you know that it, that it is. It's a, like you. There's some books you can, magazines or books you can pick up. And I don't, I don't know quite what, know what this is either. So I'm going to call it a magazine stroke book because I think it's more than yeah. a magazine, but it's obviously a, a shorter read. journal.
2: Maybe a journal. I don't know. Yeah,
0: I don't know. And I, I don't even feel think journal kind of does it. Does it justice? It's it, it's something more. But the style of it. Is not an easy read. You can't just browse a you know a couple of chapters and then put it down. Like whenever I read a story yeah. in it, I have to sit down, and I sit down, and I will only read one because by the end of it, I'm mentally quite tired because I'm a bit stupid. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm a bit stupid. Like I really am a bit stupid, and I really have to think about the context of some of the words that are in it, some of the style. And now I'm thinking about it. Your blog used to make me feel very similar. That I would read it, and at the end of it, I would be like, "Whoa." <laughs> that that was that was quite tough it wasn't throwaway blogging which a lot of blogging was and still is where it's just kind of like here's some words and tomorrow nobody reads it because there's another post that's up there um, yeah it, i mean it, it, again you're saying that that's a a, a purpose for the when you were a political journalist was that a similar way to you wrote or uh
2: yes although i wrote for mass market newspapers yeah. so my writing needed to be much more accessible i mm-hmm. guess to the general reader. And in the States, newspapers, I guess, are willing to use slightly bigger words and longer sentences than in the UK. Uh, I'm thinking about tabloid culture here. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's um, that, that was definitely more of a general audience where this, I, you know, I think there's a style of magazine journalism. Um, I'm thinking about the London Review of Books or the New Yorker magazine or the Atlantic Magazine, and things like that, where there's essentially long-form journalism that you are meant to sit down and read and think over. And that's my sweet spot, personally. So, you know, I suppose you could say this is a bit of a fantasy uh, project, and it doesn't come out that often because it's not a main project, it's a bit of a side gig. But um, at the end of the day, I hope it's accessible enough, not just for coffee people, but for consumers to read and find interesting things about coffee in there. But also, I hope it does provoke a bit of that thought And I think, you know, the nature of coffee publishing today is that it's mostly trade publications. It's mostly publications by insiders for insiders. And I think that's fine. Uh, Any industry needs that. But if coffee is a major export uh, with a lot of climate implications and trade implications and political implications, then we aren't remotely really talking about that on any level. Certainly not like we do with oil, certainly not like we do with lots of other commodities out there. So I think there's a series I think even if I wasn't a coffee nerd I could look at coffee and say, "Ooh, there's a gap there where there could be some serious questions asked and some serious journalism done around that subject that no one else is doing."
0: I think I think there's also another problem with those trade publications and and to an extent the e-journalism that's out there and I, is e-journalism a word? Have I just made that up? Sure, yeah, yeah. go for it. Okay, <laughs> well, you know what I mean by it, but there is yeah, there yeah. is a, an element of it that is it's funded by sponsorship, it's funded by money of people within the industry, yes. which puts you in a place where you don't have the same kind of independence because um, you, you you know you you can't. I mean, for instance, if Longry was sponsored by. Um, square mile coffee you wouldn't be able to say anything bad about a square mile coffee and everybody wants to say bad things about a square mile coffee <laughs> <laughs> of, course of course they do I'm sorry James you, Take them you down yeah, you know that's a lie because I love your coffee but but that, you, you get the understanding of like this is and, and not having that sponsorship base I mean is that important to you in the stories that you want to put in there
2: I think so yes I think I've always seen um, syrup sponsorships of barista training and not barista training barista competitions uh, and the adverts that run in a lot of the publications as probably an economic necessity, but something that would be really nice to be free of if you could. So nobody's going to make loads of money off this magazine because we're not, we're not raking it in from advertising. Uh, and there's a bit of an itch too, and this, this is purely a media world thing, but there's a lot of moaning at the moment about how media is falling apart, at least mass media. And that's because all the advertising is going away. It's all going online. And so newspapers can't charge the confiscatory rates that they used to be able to for a classified ad or something. So newspapers are struggling. Magazines are struggling. And the reason is no one has ever had to pay what it costs to produce those things. Advertisers paid. So what if in some fantasy world you could actually produce something and the reader paid for it and it all worked beautifully without any advertiser in the mix. And so, yeah, this is a little experiment and to see, you know, see if that can happen.
0: So, um, I, I, I'm just going to pick up on that syrup point you made. Actually, is like because I can say this now. I'm not part of the the SCAE thing where you have to go and ask for sponsors. But I'm always really confused why syrup sponsors want to sponsor a barista competition. Um, oh yeah, it absolutely amazes me that they want to chuck the money at it that they do when yeah. nobody pays any attention to it. I mean, I think it's like. I think machine sponsors and grinder sponsors I kind of get, you know, but the syrup sponsors just say, here's a lot of money, please put our name on a board behind a barista that wins, and I find that crazy. Um, right, that's a-
2: and you've got, a, you've got a craft dedicated to highlighting coffee flavor in a way that gets you ultimately away from syrups, uh, so it makes zero sense for, in my mind, for a syrup company to sponsor that competition. Um, uh, you know, but I feel that way about an awful lot of media. And so sometimes I think maybe it's me that's oblivious. And I think, you know, it's, it's surely some people are just paying for exposure wherever they can get it. And if that's your business strategy, then fine. Yeah.
1: Steve's not really letting me get an, an, a word in edgewise. I'm, uh,
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, Jen. I I, I like I, I'm a, I was a massive fan of Ben. I mean, that's why you, when we were talking about people yes. that we wanted to get, I was like, I want to get Ben on because I like I say I just the blog was one of those things that just still sticks in my memory even now, and and also like the pleasure of meeting you, just like it's kind of such an interesting one. So I will let you talk, Jen. <laughs> I promise.
1: Well, no, I want to bring it back to this idea of sustainability in terms of the publication. And um, this is a bit of an experiment for you and. Are you comfortable talking about how successful that's been so far?
2: Sure. Um, there's not a whole lot to say. It's very simple. Uh, we thought, let's make it beautiful. Let's publish things that we would want to read. Um, James shares my interest, I think, in long-form writing and sort of thought-provoking writing. So, um, And there's a third person on board, uh, a friend of mine, Jake Forrest, who does the design for us. So it's, it's a group, it's a band of three people, basically, and we thought, let's do something that we would like. Would anyone else like it? I don't know. <laughs> let's give it a try. In uh, this day and age with, with publishing, you can pretty much um, print a bunch of magazines and recoup your costs fairly easily and fairly quickly. So we just thought, let's set price points, see how it goes. Yeah. So issue one came out um, a couple of years ago now, and uh i think we printed uh, uh a thousand if i remember correctly and they all sold fairly quickly and the idea is that the print edition is a special thing it has no ads in it it's meant to be high quality and when it's gone it's gone so um uh, that worked quite nicely on issue one we did lose a few i think in shipping but um those are headaches and then you know the digital copy lives on so with issue two we've printed a few more uh, they're not gone yet but it's the same idea when it's gone it's gone Uh, hopefully we turn a bit of profit on it and it's worth our time and it gives us enough money to pay contributors. That's the other thing that's always irritated me about coffee media is that an awful lot of it seems to be driven not just by insiders but by insiders who are asked to write and contribute things for free. And I think it's only fair that we pay people for their brilliant work. So um, that's what we're trying to do. And if we have a bit of money left over at the end of the day, great. But it's not uh, not raking it in, I can assure you that.
1: Oh, no. I mean, I, I think... For me it's just sustainability is a thing that i also see in longberry two at the minute like all of volume two seems to focus on the concept of sustainability as a whole um yeah. from coffee itself from the ability of farmers to farm the use of waste products um and i look at that in comparison to volume one which is uh everything from farmer quality of life political unrest and guatemala shop design and your filter paper cuppings which i thought were actually really clever Um, (laughs) cappuccinos and colonialism like when i look at the two and then here you think talking about um sustainability of the publication it feels like sustainability is a really big thing um and this volume also feels a lot more weighty and i was wondering um From the perspective of sustainability of the publication, if the way you sourced and developed content changed between Volumes 1 and 2, or if it stayed very much the same?
2: Um, So far it's pretty similar. I think I secretly hoped that I would get a rush of brilliant submissions after Issue (laughs) (laughs) 1. And that I could be a ruthless editor and chop and cut and, you know, uh, that hasn't exactly happened. Um, but that's okay. I think what we've, one, one thing I'm interested in, so if I'm not going to write a publication that's by insiders and for insiders, but that provokes insiders to thought, but maybe hopefully is accessible to the general public, then I think you have to look elsewhere sometimes for your contributors. Um, there are brilliant, don't get me wrong, they're brilliant people in coffee who I'd love to contribute for us. But there are places like academia where the amount of research that's being done Uh, and you see this at the symposiums sometimes, um, and the amount of brilliant work being done that really doesn't get circulated within the coffee world, it to me is a rich vein of exploration. So in both issues, we have academics who have written for us and that's great fun because they're used to research and writing and they often have this stuff ready at their fingertips, but they've never written for the general public. So my my job with those guys is to edit their writing and adapt it and then maybe make it more interesting. You know, academics don't tend to put anecdotes in their stories. <laughs> no. and the, the sorts of things that we crave <laughs> as readers. So um, that's good fun, and I find that to be a, a great challenge. And then there will be coffee people in there as well. Um, and then in this issue, I just happened to um, to get to know a guy who's kind of a brilliant um, Spanish-oriented fiction writer. And he had a piece that he'd been trying to get published that was actually coffee-related. And I said, you know, hey, I'm not opposed to publishing fiction, yeah. so we'll give it a go. Cool.
0: It's really, it's yeah. really interesting because it's something we've really tried with the Tampa Tantrum, uh, kind of uh, events. Uh, is have like not necessarily coffee people speaking. So uh, we had uh, Chris Hendon and Shahal. Uh, yeah. Uh, speak. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and we last uh, cup north we had. Laurent. Um, Laurent. Uh, who's a uh, he's a sommelier and he's master of wine uh, qualifications and things. And they were the ones that engaged the coffee people more because I think we've all heard the coffee people talk for a very long time through blogs, through podcasts like this, you know, through uh, Twitter and all all the other forms and formats that are out there that actually sometimes, yes, coffee people have still got very interesting things to say, but we tend to pocketbook science um, the really difficult things and try and make them very simple when they're not simple. And academics are really kind of quite good at they saying no. It's not simple, and it's really complicated. And here it is. Um, Absolutely, and I think it's super important yeah. to actually get that outsider, outside of view of what we're doing. And, and and I mean, I remember talking to Shahar in um, Prague. And he's like, basically, he was looking in and laughing at us, kind of going, "What are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're trying to, you're trying to create science, but without any scientific uh, background, understanding or or basis. You know, it's just like, well, I say it to this, so it exists." Um, and I think that's the great thing about the magazine, not to turn this into an advert for the magazine, that it has those different levels where there are coffee people, that there, there, there are non-coffee people, but actually there's also that kind of, that, that, you know, the, the fiction side of it. It's just something different that if I pick up any other coffee magazine, doesn't happen.
2: Right. And I just think we can benefit so much from cross-pollination. That's, that's the basic point for me um, in, in, in not sort of staying within the echo chamber um that the you know the the big visual spread in this magazine that looks at coffee ferment water and how it's currently discarded but is potentially tasty and usable in lots of products Uh, that started because i was doing an ma in international development Uh, as you might imagine i was using that process to do a lot of coffee research because i wanted to Uh, and i was i think i was writing a paper about violence and coffee in burundi at the time which may eventually make it to the magazine i don't know uh, but I, I saw an academic paper about the pectin content of coffee. I have no idea why I spotted this, but I thought pectin—you mean you can make jam? <laughs> so I—I—I uh, had—I knew—I knew this guy Patrick Hughes in, in Honduras, and I just went, Do you, "Have you got anything to play with? You know, um, you know, could we look at jam?" And that's how that spread started, and that went way beyond jam into ferment water and what a potentially tasty ingredient that that is. But that's how that stuff happens, and that's the result of cross pollination. That's the result of us getting outside of our frameworks, and you know maybe immersing yourselves in boring academic papers and finding ideas. And and, it, and if I go back to my journalism days, that's how brilliant stories happen. You know, they don't just they don't just pop up in front of your face as you go about your business. I mean, it really it takes some cross pollination, I think, to make it
0: happen. I think it's fair to say as well that you your very into the food and the, the things that you're eating. I remember coming to stop at your house that time and just having <laughs> I, having the like, the best olive oil I've ever yeah. tasted in my life. So so much so, Ben gave me some to take away with me because I wouldn't shut up about the oil. I think it was like, did I, I did. I still have a tiny oh. bit of it left, a tiny I'm bit. I'm really
2: bit. glad I did that. Yeah, honestly. you know like, what? It's...
0: And it, it still eats an amazing olive oil and it changed my opinion of olive oil. I didn't know olive oil tasted other stuff. You know, I've kind of heard it, but never tasted it. And I tasted it in that one. It was amazing. And you also run a farmer's market, didn't you, at the time? you were
2: Yeah, yeah. So we get that oil from the farmer, which is the incredible bit. I mean, I live in Brighton now in the UK, and I run a little farmer's market that's an experiment around sustainable food systems and community and providing people some jobs. Uh, and we happen to have a woman who's Brightonian who married a guy from Crete. And half the year, they're on his farm in Crete harvesting olives. And the other half of the year, they go through the farmers markets in Brighton selling the stuff and it's incredible. It's incredible. But that's the kind of transparency we don't get in coffee that we don't get in oil and that obviously I I'm a bit of a nerd about that sort of thing.
0: But but do you, do you think that that, that interest in food is your cross-pollination to having a a slightly different view on coffee because you're so involved in that 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 other side it's not just about I mean I think Coffee's obviously a major focus for you and, and and talking to you it definitely feels that way. But like, do you think the food is something that gives you that different one? And also having that journalism background, having the US background, living in Brighton, all of these different things happening?
2: Uh I think so, yes. I think having a background that enables me to ask uh cranky independent questions <laughs> about things that I love. That's good. <laughs> uh I think Uh, I now work for a charity effectively and we work with lots of vulnerable people in different ways and I think that that's part of my sort of bent towards not wanting to be into anything to the degree that it that it separates me from people and and real people (laughs) and 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 ordinary people you know what I mean like like the the brilliant thing about the olive oil to me isn't that it's super high-end olive oil which it is but it's produced by a woman that I know mm-hmm. and we can make it accessible to ordinary people and it happens to be the best olive oil that I've ever had so you know that to me is that that links it all up that's the chain that I'd like to participate in and with coffee as we were just talking about before we pressed the record button I think you know and and as we talk about in the new longbury actually I think coffee is at risk of becoming a bit of a lifestyle brand yes. to many people where everything is done for the image of it. Um, Images are used quite cheaply, and the exoticism of it is the way that it's sold. And that risks really, I think, divorcing coffee from real and ordinary people, both at the producer end, in terms of farmers and their actual lives, Mm -hmm. and consumers. So it's interesting to me, being an American in the UK, I'm quite conscious that there's still quite a lot of class sensitivity in the UK. Mm -hmm. It's took me a while to get my head around it. But I realize when we're making really nice coffees on a pop-up bar that I run that we get everybody from, you know, your serious flat white drinkers who know exactly how they want it to the guys still going, look, just give me a white coffee, three sugars, please. You know, and if, if we, if I think if we wall ourselves off from large segments of the population, I don't understand how our industry is going to grow and I don't understand how it's going to be meaningful to people.
0: I, like yeah it's my it's it's my mantra bang on about all the time is like said a lot of people kind of it's particularly industry people say why do you do in my mug every week like why do you kind of sit there and just basic basic down a coffee into some you know this is what it tastes like this is where it's from you should try it and it's very Hmm. much is like it's trying to keep that accessibility because I think we do have a risk of kind of just making ourselves it, it you know untouchable from the common man who may just want a coffee or may want to find out a little bit about more about his coffee and it, you kind of got to find that way of you know like if you gave that coffee and three sugars guy Longbreed go what the heck you know and but if we don't start talking to him we never get his we, we never pull him as part of it so that's where you know the, the, there's right. lots of coffee forums and all of the things that can get people into that point to then graduate onto something, you know, light like Longbury, but we still need the other things to make it more accessible. Um, I'm ca- I'm conscious. I like. I want to talk to you about all of this stuff now, but I want to wrap up the Longbury stuff before we before we move on to that. Um, sure. I, I kind of I want to. I just really want to kind of find out the future plans for Longbury because you say there's. Um, yeah, you know, this is the second e- edition and there was a couple of year gap between them. Are we gonna be waiting a couple of years for the next one? Has this what you're up to? That's
2: the question. Um, you know, the the inherent flaw in our current business model, such as it is, uh, is that uh, James, Jake, and myself are all really busy people who are trying to do this on the side. So, um, that's not to not to pity myself or anything like that. It's just to say, uh, Sometimes we, we lack the person pushing things across the finish line, uh, and I used to have uh, a, newspa- a newspaper editor in America who who was highly influential on my writing life, and he was a Southerner. I was in South Carolina, and he used to say, "Bain, you always do your best work with a gun in your ear," <laughs> and I, and he'd say, "You know, your job every day is to figure out a way to screw that gun right back in your ear." and i thought well you know and that's always stuck with me and it's true and the problem with longbury is that sometimes we don't have any sort of guillotine hanging over our heads um but all that to say i would like to issue another one quite a lot quicker than two years um i think i'd be interested in submissions i would be interested in working with an editor who could help me push that across the line so if there's anybody out there who finds this um a part of their skill set i think i'd be interested in that um but at the end of the day, yeah, we also don't want to publish until we feel good and ready. Mm-hmm. So the nice thing about not having advertisers is that nobody's, nobody's forcing you to publish quarterly, even if you don't really like what you've put in the magazine. So we can sort of say, kind of like the literary magazine thing, you know, or, or that, you know, or that sort of genre. We can say, look, we'll publish when there's a full issue of amazing stuff that we'd want to read.
0: Yeah. What was the gun in the head this time?
2: Um well we just sort of created it out of nothing. One of it was the embarrassment of having gone two years. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> yeah. another, another one was the uh um, was the fact that we'd had some writers who'd submitted stuff to us quite early on and we're now going what the heck. Uh and and then we um we actually hosted the Brewer's Cup, uh the national heat in Brighton and that was in a building a venue that I manage and So because I could sort of do anything I wanted with that particular coffee event, I kind of went, this is an ideal opportunity to launch this in a way that would make sense to us and that we'd have control over and we could do an interesting launch dinner and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, we sort of created some deadlines for ourselves and pushed it across.
0: So last bit of the sales plug, where can people buy copies of Longbury? How can they get the digital editions, stuff like that?
2: Um, yeah, we still have copies available at longburypress.com. Um, we are shipping uh, wholesale quantities for the first time. So you can get units of 10 or boxes of 38. That's about half the cover price, I guess. Um, yeah, so longburypress.com, and then the digital edition will continue to be downloadable. And we will survive the print edition when it's all sold out. Fantastic!
1: Did you ever think, when you were asking James Hoffman all those questions on your front porch back in 2008, that this is? Ah, you remember come that?
2: That's it? amazing! <laughs> <laughs> no, no. In fact, and it's just so random. Uh, in fact, I, it's funny, Steve. You brought it the time you were at my house. You know, I'm still a bit of a home coffee nerd who can't believe that I'm. You know, I know these people. Uh, <laughs> And it was, that, it, was a, it was a blog post that sort of shamed James into stopping at my house on a road trip. I said, look, James, I'm right off the motorway. Why on earth wouldn't you stop? You know, I sort of embarrassed him, I think, publicly into stopping at my house. And the funny thing about that was um, I put him on my little home espresso machine and asked him to make me an espresso. And he struggled with it and struggled with it for like 30 minutes. And I sort of took a certain amount of glee in the fact that the world barista champion couldn't make a decent espresso on my machine. But he, in in the sort of in the low key way that he does, said, "When was the last time you changed the burrs on your grinder?" And I went, uh. <laughs> and he said, "Right." So sure enough, it was my fault, and the grinder was a mess, and and so there was this slight embarrassment on both sides that no good coffee happened while James was at my house, and then funnily enough, when you stayed at my house, Steve, I made you a pretty crappy cup of coffee as well, that I think I'd roasted uh, poorly. And um, I seem to I seem to have a bit of a habit, really. But
0: but unlike, unlike James, I was far too polite to say anything. I'm sure I enjoyed it. <laughs> 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 I would never blame you, Ben. I would <laughs> I'd blame the green that you'd bought. So <laughs> well,
2: that's nice of you, but yeah, it was my fault.
0: <laughs> so um, uh, kind of looking at um, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, project that you've been doing with the apprentices. Because um, yes. I know this is something that you, is super close to your heart and uh, has been something you've been working really hard with, with like Taylor Street and Small Batch and, and part of the church, uh, the one church project that you'd running in in Brighton. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that came about um, to actually start? Yeah, sure.
2: So weirdly enough, I finished an MA in the UK. Wanted to stay, uh, ended up not sort of finding the media job that would suit me. And uh, charity and church here locally called One Church offered to hire me um, uh, to run social projects. Um, I had always done a bit of homeless work and a bit of sort of local food sort of work in my private life on the side, and so this sort of became a job and. Coming off the back of an international development degree, it was like, ah, let's develop some interesting social projects. Um, One church is a church, but it's also a registered charity that includes loads of people who aren't particularly religious. So it seemed like um, a decent place to work. And I actually took over an old um, uh, disused church building. And it's a venue and a space where we can do whatever we want, basically, and run social projects and, and do brilliant things. So as soon as I took on this space, which is this big old gorgeous 1904 sort of church building, uh, I, I called up Andrew Tolley from Taylor Street uh, and said, I want to do some coffee training. Um, and one church as a charity was already working with unemployed young people trying to get them jobs, but didn't have any actual career tracks for them. They were just sort of linking people with opportunities. And I said, well, let's develop a career track in coffee. And the interesting thing to me about coffee is that we still have a labor shortage, don't we? In specialty coffee, we have a skills gap. We have uh, a shortage of baristas trained to our satisfaction. And basically, either you can afford to train in-house or if you're a small independent that can't afford that, you're going to try to poach trained baristas away from somewhere else. And we're all sort of stealing baristas from each other um, while not paying them very much money, uh, and desperately trying to professionalize our craft. So I've been a part of that sort of conversation as a, as a, as a marginally um, involved coffee person for a while. Meanwhile, as a charity, we we're working with all these young people who would die for these jobs, you know, who started seeing it as a cool thing to do. So we thought, why not join the two? And as it happens, there's a government scheme in the UK that's been around for ages and bricklayers and electricians have been using it forever and ever. And it's just it's an apprenticeship where government pays for the training. The government incentivizes the employer to take on an apprentice. And lo and behold, you know, you can do training one day a week. uh, You can get a job placement. You can work four days a week. Uh, You can start at somewhat uh, low wage as a trainee apprentice. And hopefully if you are highly trained by the end of the year, then then you can end up with a fairly attractive wage out of this process. And the employer gets 1,500 pounds from the government usually just to take on an apprentice. So I'm looking at this going, why? (laughs) Why has no one done this with coffee before? So we started the first one. And and it's really been a, a fascinating process. And, and, as again, not wanting to fetishize coffee, not wanting to turn coffee into, into something that some people might roll their eyes about and say these people are lost. You know, they've <laughs> gotten lost in their fetish. Um, what's brilliant to me about it is that I'm working with young people. And that you take young people with no prospects, but who are eager and who just need skills. And we can do SCAE certified I'm supposed to say sky now. Aren't I?
0: <laughs> Not sky on
2: certified. Say, S- no, say SCAA,
0: okay. They're taking us over.
2: <laughs> okay, right. Well, the the S.C.A. certified. Yeah. Uh, so we can, you know, we so we we layer on top five um, S.C.A. certificates, um, all three of the barista certificates and two of the brewing certificates, um, and we train for a year. And in coffee, where have you done that before? So you just have this incredible luxury, I think, of spending a year with a young person. Um, getting them industry-known certificates, placing them in jobs. Uh, We provide one-to-one mentorship as well with life issues, and we place a heavy emphasis on customer service. So you're able, over the course of a year, to build quite a package that I think can be very focused on the person. And you end up doing, I think, a little bit what Jamie Oliver did with his 15, which which is training at a very high level, but opening the doors to people who actually need the work. And I find that exciting because it, t- it tags both of those sweet spots, you know. It says we're going to do really good coffee, but we're not going to be pretentious about it. We're going to open up pathways and work with vulnerable people, and, and, it, and it can all link up. So if I look at the specialty coffee industry, I think um, here's potentially a way, an economical way, to rethink the way we do training and the way we deal with the labor shortage while also doing something which I don't know that Specialty Coffee is very good at, which is um, really adding social value.
1: Wow. And how many people did you have running through the apprenticeship this first year?
2: So in the first year, we did 10. Um, We had a cohort of 10 young people, and we placed them all in Brighton area cafes. Actually, it's anywhere from Brighton to Eastbourne to Gatwick sort of area. Um and we had an extremely high retention rate nine of the ten finished the year um which is sort of unheard of in apprenticeships yeah. mm-hmm. and they are all um in very i think attractive jobs at the moment um some of the stories i'm most proud of we have a, we have a barista who's finished her year with us and has just gone to work in the bank shop for taylor street wow. in london and that is a heaving shop and a very good job indeed and we have, um, we have some of our trainees from this past year who are now head baristas in their store, who are managers in their store, um, who do different things. We have one who wants to start a social product of his own, working on a slower pace with um, more vulnerable young people, using coffee as an excuse to build relationships and help people who have anxiety issues and that sort of thing. So that's our year one graduates, and I couldn't be prouder. And we're in the middle of year two now and another cohort of 10 young people.
0: Well, I was lucky, lucky enough to hang out with a couple of them on stage because they were volunteering at the UKBC, weren't they? Yeah, there? yeah, that's right. And, and they, they were awesome. They were just amazing. They were so interesting. I think they were so confused at times, but then, to be fair, I was confused at times of some of the performances. <laughs> but, like, they really got into it and were seemed to be really enjoying it, which was uh, was fantastic to see. Because I think the other thing is is a lot of the... You know, you, you do you don't really get super young people being involved it tends to be the 20 somethings kind of thing you don't really yeah. get like you know kids out of school but I mean that's the age for them to get involved and to be doing more it tends to be more like you know they've gone to university they've done a couple of years at university then fall into coffee so it's kind of nice to see that I mean one of the guys he looked younger than my son I was very frightened It just, it just <laughs> I was very old um, yeah. it was very very cool to see I mean how did they see the week did they enjoy it did they enjoy the experience of being part of it
2: I think they were. Are you talking about London Coffee yes, Festival? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they did enjoy it. I think they were a little bit overwhelmed by the noise volumes in, that, in the in the and the glitz and the glamour of it. But in terms of the UKBC, that was an opportunity to get up close, really close to some obviously some incredibly professional baristas. So we talk about um, how you might split milk and how you, you know, we don't talk about it. We do split milk, but we talk about how you might split milk over four cappuccinos without spilling a drop, you know, and your milk foam consistency being the same across all the drinks. And then you see them do it in competition setting and it's a little bit awe-inspiring. So from a technical nerdy perspective, I think, I think it was great for them to be that close to some really professional baristas. Um, From a, uh, from, I guess, a more personal standpoint, I think one of the volunteers you would have hung out with, Steve, is, um, is 17 now. Mm-hmm. And sh- so she would have started at 16 with the apprenticeship. And she had um, she had anxiety issues. She'd never worked a job in her life. She tended to not look you in the eye, um, really unsure of herself and uncertain about what she wanted to do. And if you fast forward a year, she's extremely confident on the espresso machine she's a fantastic barista she volunteered you know on her own dime at the competition and really loved it and in her shop now in brighton she i believe does a lot of the training for their new hires so 17 years old that's that's incredible and we've seen oh just so many cool things happen with young people that way but the um Stop me if I'm rambling, but if, you all. know, <laughs> no. part of the, the the government there is a slight tension in that the you know an apprenticeship can run for anyone 16 to 24 years old. What makes sense from an economical cafe standpoint is to take a 23, 24 year old whose life sorted and just needs some skills, mm-hmm. and we train for a year and off you go. You know, you have a very able professional. What the government wants you to do, and what they will fund you at a higher rate to do, is to take 16 to 18 year old who has decided not to go to college and uh, sort them out a career. Now, I don't know how many 16-year-olds you've met who will sign up to anything for a year uh, and who know what career they want to go into, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit like finding a needle in the haystack. So there's a slight challenge there. But I again, I think if we can get people in coffee thinking more openly about how they might want to develop talent, how they might want to intercept people at a younger age, yeah, and open some incredible doors to them. And how they certainly, yes, might benefit as a business in a big way, but also how you might invest, you know, it, it, there's all this negative press, isn't there, now, around gentrification and hipster coffee shops being an emblem of areas that are, you know, that are, that are going middle class, and then that leaves out the poor and all this stuff. Well, what if part of the consciousness of our you know, wave of coffee was to look out for the people who needed the work and to deliberately invest in ways that created employment for them because we do have a labor shortage. So um, that type of social value, I think, is ideally suited as, as an investment for speciality coffee, but I'm not sure that are that many coffee companies thinking that way just yet. That's kind of my crusade. That's kind of one of the buttons I'm trying to push, I think.
1: Well, so you've kind of started in on one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is that you've had tremendous success securing funding from the government. Um, And often I actually have some people come up and ask, you know, they're interested in doing that kind of work or they're interested in getting involved with that kind of work or starting that kind of a program. Um, But the funding is always the roadblock. Do you have any words of wisdom for them?
2: Uh, well that is that is the beauty funding is a roadblock, but I think there are multiple ways of of slicing it potentially um, if if we're talking about an actual apprenticeship, mm-hmm. you know that is a scheme that's fully funded by the government. Um, what you need is to get set up you know as an apprenticeship provider for the government and that can be a cumbersome process. The shortcut is partner with your local college mm-hmm. uh, and the secret is colleges are facing pretty dramatic funding cuts just like everybody else in government uh and so they are desperate to find new sources of money and there's a lot of money in apprenticeships okay they know that and most colleges are now falling all over themselves trying to create new apprenticeships we work with PACA um in Port Slade here in Sussex and when they found out that there was an entire tier the coffee industry that could be served with an apprenticeship and no one was doing it yet Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they literally were begging us to start as soon as possible. I'm not kidding. So then they go to the government. They're already set up to provide apprenticeships. Right. They go to the government. They draw the funding, and they make it all work. So that's one shortcut, and that's how we've made it work. i would say this. The whole world of apprenticeships is about to change. Okay. Um, they're remaking the whole thing, and the government is actually opening the door to specialty coffee companies or, or anybody else to write standards of training that they want in their business so so this year for example I am potentially gonna head up a panel of specialty coffee people to sit down and write training standards that would serve our industry that are that you could say are of a specialty standard yeah? yeah then you could turn around and deliver any component of that training uh, within your business or charity and draw funding directly to do that so that'll be new you won't have to go through a college um, you can potentially draw funding directly to deliver the training to the standards that you need. And I have mixed feelings about this. Some part of me thinks it's a bit of a Tory giveaway to business. <laughs> part of me thinks it could work out very well for Specialty Coffee yeah. in terms of doing training differently and getting the government to fund it.
1: Wow. And so if this is your crusade and you want to expand the, pro- the program, sorry, there's a little bit of an echo. It's throwing me off. Um, <laughs> if you want to expand the program um but obviously you have a a set number of people you can really work with in that very one-on-one intense developing a relationship way um how do you see the program expanding can it actually expand out of one church or will it need to be lots of other people taking on similar values and programs and ideas
2: yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, One Church as a Charity doesn't have an ambition of being a national provider. Um, however, we have developed resources such as a year-long curriculum. Um, it's it's certainly pegged to SCAE standards, but um, uh, is is certainly reshaped and developed for young people over the course of the year with visual aids and all that sort of thing. Um, and we've developed that in collaboration with uh, Laura Holmes, or now Laura Lumsden, sorry, uh, who is a trainer here in Brighton, and she works very closely with us and developed that curriculum, and she's a brilliant AST uh, trainer. So that's a resource that I think we'd be interested in sharing. Um, We could also help people get set up, I think, because we do have this expertise, and that's something we'd be interested in doing. But ultimately, I think you'd you'd be looking for a coffee company to get behind it locally. Um, Small Batch does that for us in Brighton, and they supply all our coffee for free, which is brilliant. I don't know where we'd be without them Um, and actually I should just say while we're on the subject UCC coffee and coffee hit both supplied some gear for us we bought some of it with some funding and we got some other bits of it free so that was great but if you're if you're a coffee company and you have a training space for example you have machines and that's an easy way I think to provide a bit of um, support to a social project and potentially help in this experiment to rethink how we train baristas Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a social enterprise in London right now um, called Well-Grounded. Um, and a woman there named Eve Wagg is working with um, Ozone Coffee Roasters. And I think she's currently exploring, essentially setting up a similar model in East London. And that sort of duplication I could see happening all over the country. Yeah,
1: And do you see... Um... Like, as I was reading in Longberry, too, that the thing that I really took away from it, um, or this particular volume, was the need for education at the farm level if we really want coffee to be sustainable. Do you ever see yourself tackling that sort of a project as well, especially with your master's background, or are you just going to sort of stick with baristas for the moment?
2: Ooh, that is a good question. <laughs> uh, uh, I could certainly um, develop an itch <laughs> to, um, to work with, um, producers and educate producers. I think I would want to do that in a really humble way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. If there's anything I took away from my MA program, it was the legacy of colonialism, yes. which, by the way, is how coffee spread. So mm-hmm. it's, it's usually a pretty terrible story of how they got to be coffee farmers to begin with, yeah. um, particularly the Belgians, you know, ripping up local crops and planting coffee and you know exporting it cheaply for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, you know, I think if we weighed in with a lot of westernized solutions, I'd be skeptical of that. Um, But if there's a way to do education across the production chain Mm -hmm. that's humble and that partners with local people, I think I would be interested in that. Um, That probably is a big picture dream. Yeah, I
1: mean, I figure it was a pretty big picture thing, but... (laughs)
2: It's a good question, actually, yeah.
0: I mean, I... I absolutely love the work you do, Ben. For me, it's you're just somebody in the coffee industry I've always admired and um, you continue to do amazing things. I love this whole apprentice scheme that you have going. Um, you should be incredibly proud of the work you've done with it absolutely. all. I just think it's phenomenal. Um, and and then on the other hand, the Longbury project, which I think is also it's feeding somebody else, you know, another section of the coffee industry. It's like you couldn't be further apart, really, when you look at the two the two ends of the spectrum. But actually, we need those things to come closer. So um, yeah, uh,
2: and that's the point, really, for me. The point for me is to do uncompromising coffee uh, while engaging vulnerable people, and that seems like two opposite things. I think. Yeah. Uh, And that doesn't seem like something we think about very much in our industry. But I'll give you an example. The local council, the Brighton Council, is developing a uh, managed housing sort of building across the street from the venue that I manage. So it'll be a a tower block of flats for um, low-income seniors. Um, They know us because a colleague of mine does a lot of work with social isolation and seniors who sort of disappear from society. And so when they see our coffee project, they said to us, look, what if um, we developed a state-of-the-art cafe space on the ground floor of this building in central Brighton and we gave the coffee shop over to you? Now, to me, I couldn't get any more excited than to think about maybe some of the best coffee in Brighton, some of the most uncompromisingly tasty coffee in Brighton being made in the ground floor of a sheltered housing scheme. You know, for me, that hits the sweet spot because I believe we can do amazing coffee and do more social good, vastly more social good than we've considered so far. And and to fuse the two, I think, is a, is a fun thing to do.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, well, really quickly, before we wrap up, um, I just kind of want to go back to an idea that we spoke a little bit about earlier. Um, you kind of mentioned, A, the echo chamber, and B, coffee becoming a lifestyle brand and sort of alienating people. Um you are someone who uh, reads a lot from lots of other areas, academia and journalism, and you have such a broad background. Um, and because you're sort of coming at it from an outside perspective, I find that industry people tend to get just a little bit stuck in the bubble. Um, and I, I feel very much the same, that the coffee industry is sort of becoming that lifestyle brand, and that's a, a bit of an issue for me. It sort of makes me lose my faith, because I think we're both, in, and Steve as well, um, or from a, a time in coffee when it was you had to work really hard to find information and it was something you had to be really passionate about to um, really sort of progress or, or find that information. A lot of that information is out there now. Um, just kind of wanted to get your take on what can we as an industry do to sort of pull ourselves out of that bubble a bit more?
2: Ooh. Um, you could argue there's another problem in coffee too in that there are a, a bunch of... Um, cranky, self-important critics out there who <laughs> like to be heard, so I'm conscious that I don't want to fall into that problem. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> said I'm sorry,
0: okay, let's just <laughs> no, leave it. <laughs> no, no.
2: We could name names, but we're not going to do that. Uh, I think, um, yeah, that's part of why I'm doing what I'm doing, yeah. right? It's, it's an attempt to um, really enjoy coffee it's it's like it's like the two never meet. It's like social value and it's like relatability to normal people, and seriousness about coffee never meet. Because if you're if you're a social project, um, the coffee industry thinks you won't do your coffee well enough, mm-hmm. and if you're a coffee person, then the social enterprise sector thinks that your head's stuck. You know where? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and so never the two paths will cross. And I sort of I'm just obsessed in proving that they can. Yeah. I think and in the same way that we talk about the need to 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 do social work at the producer end of the of the supply chain, which is something thankfully we're talking about quite a lot now. We have to think the same way about what we're paying our baristas and how we even open the doors to those opportunities at this end of the production chain. So uh, not to be repetitive, but I, th- I do think that is why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I'm uh, I couldn't be more into coffee, but I couldn't be more, skeptical of the simple glossy fetish of coffee mm-hmm. the image-based lifestyle brand of coffee that to me ultimately cheapens what we care about yeah. and i don't know why we'd do that it flattens it it cheapens it it just turns it into an easily tradable instagram photo you know what i mean mm-hmm. it doesn't go any deeper than that and if we would really value what we're into which is coffee and we have to really value the people that are that are into it, and I I just think that's the fundamental issue of sustainability at all at all parts of the production chain. Yeah.
0: You make me feel like an incredibly bad human being. Um, <laughs> Why?
2: Oh, come on, Steve.
0: <laughs> no, no, like you're you're doing so many amazing projects and so much amazing work, and like I I. Uh, yeah, I, you should be incredibly proud of the work you're doing. I think yes. it's phenomenal. And those those young people who I met on u on the UKBC stage today, like uh, on the Sunday, like whoever the unconfident one was, they weren't there there because they were pushing me out the way all the time. I said, like, "I've got work to do. Get out of my way." Um, That's they, great. No, they they were absolutely amazing and a, and a real credit to um, to to the apprentice work that you're doing. This um, is mate. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I know you're a super busy man. Um, you, you you have family to look after and all the rest and and all of these apprentices to look after and everything yeah. else that you do. Um, I, thank you very much. Uh, I don't know about no your worries, chat. I've really, really a, enjoyed it. A,
1: yeah.
2: It's been a great chat. Good fun. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, is it an hour? Is it an hour gone by? It is an hour gone Just
0: by. Just about.
2: Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't even finished my coffee. I'm horse and part.
0: Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us, mate. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, over and out.